It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. I'm Steve Yoder, and with me, as always, is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, a former reporter who used to tell these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Tonight is part three of our series, To Catch a Killer. We had the unique opportunity to interview a detective who spent eight years of his career trying to solve a cold homicide case, only to realize his suspect was a serial killer. And he knew who he was. He just needed to get the evidence to prove it. In the first two episodes, the now-retired Talmadge Captain Doug Bohan walked us through the 1970s murder of Karen Bentz and Loretta Davis and the 40-year-long criminal career of the chief suspect, Gus Zafaris. In this episode, Captain Bohan will take us through a nail-biting trial of Zafaris this past April. And you're going to hear a unique perspective from an investigator who had to watch as courtroom procedures tossed out some of the evidence he found, debated whether other clues he acquired could be shared with jurors, and how he prayed that enough remained to finally lock up this killer for good. So let's get started. Now, just a warning, if you haven't listened to parts one and two, you might get a little lost because we aren't supplementing this series with our usual narrative storytelling. We're simply jumping right back into our interview with Captain Doug Bohan for part three of To Catch a Killer. So, Captain Bohan, let's jump to 2023. I know we're going to have to jump backwards a little bit, yeah. but to this year, you finally got Gus Safaris to a jury. Yes. And the trial began. You arrested him in 2019, so it took four years to get there. Wait, was that the pandemic? Part of it. Part of it was. Um, but the biggest part, the pandemic caused some uh, some continuances, of course, you know, the delays and, you know, how are we going to do this? How are we going to get people together? And, and, you know, we had to learn to work remotely, right, even at, at court. But I think the biggest delay was surrounding evidence. And, uh, you know, the admissibility, what was going to be going on at trial. And so sometimes, you know, for an investigator, that's one of those things where you always want to do everything right. You know, when you have someone in custody and, and you're asking questions which can implicate them, then you use Miranda, you know. And if you don't, then everything that that person says can be suppressed at trial. And you're aware of that. Or if you take something... 
without a warrant, right? That can be admissible. But when you do everything right, and then it really comes down to just a judgment, like on these other acts evidence, um, you're just praying that a judge sees things fairly, you know, and, and reasonably, I guess, would be a better term, you know. And so in 2020, we began having uh, what's called an other acts hearing because we felt that these, all these prior acts of his, um, and we knew that some of them, like the 16-year-old girl who was nine months pregnant and didn't wish to testify, and all of the officers involved in that case were deceased, with her unwillingness to testify, that case was out the window. The 1969 case, the first case where he got put on probation and called in the day of Karen's murder, uh, we couldn't use that case. We couldn't even ask for it to be admitted because the officers were all deceased and the victim was deceased. And so we knew that those cases were out. But we still had a number of other cases that we wished for the judge to hear about, and we felt that they met the exception to the prohibition on other acts evidence because we felt that, one, they were therefore identity of the suspect related to these crimes, and it showed motive, uh, intent, you know, all that kind of stuff. It showed his, his method of, I think the, the courts might use the language, this human blueprint that is significant with these crimes, this pattern of his. And clearly there was a pattern. And so we felt that really good about the fact that we would get some of these in. And the judges and I'm no attorney or judge, and this is just a detective view, but I think what they really weigh to, to make it um, kind of in layman's terms is, is the probative value of this information, the evidentiary value of it. Is it outweighed by a prejudicial effect on the jury? Is it more prejudicial than probative? Is it, is it going to hurt and you know put a false impression in the jury's mind against the defendant uh, more than its evidential value, evidentiary value. And that's what a judge has to decide. You know, I mean, we're looking at all these similarities, right? His use of a car, all the similarities between his known other acts, which he admitted to, and these two murders, which he did not, where are they so similar that that is evidentiary? Um, and is that evidence uh, going to be outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice to a jury by just hearing them? So that's what we're having the hearing on. And so we had these, these prior victims come in, the officers who investigated these crimes. We even had the witnesses. So we had this, this we had all these people come in, and it was, it was a hearing, you know, it was done remotely, and that was during COVID. It was, 20, I think it was like October of 2020 or something, right? And so, you know, we present all of these things, and we're like, well, the judge may not allow all of them, but you know, certainly we think she'll allow some of them, you know, because they, we feel strongly that there's so many similarities here, you know, this human blueprint that is acceptable uh, by the courts in these cases, we feel we met that standard. And so we are awaiting this ruling, you know, so there was a delay for that. And finally, the ruling comes out and the judge excluded all of them, every one of them. We could not bring in one. Wow. And it was that was the lowest point of this case because I had... One, I had done so much work. I mean, the vast majority in 2018 of what I did uh, was these other acts, you know, identifying, locating these witnesses, these prior victims, you know. The Huntington, West Virginia case took me months just to find her because there were no documents I could find with her name. And she had been married and her name had changed. 
I, I literally had to go and dig through court records in an attic of an old courthouse in Huntington, West Virginia to find something on her. Um, and that was crazy. You know, I got up one morning. I'm like, I got, I've got to go to Huntington. I told my chief, I'm like, I got to drive down there. I'm at a, I've been months trying everything I can. And so I drive to Huntington, West Virginia. I don't know if you want to hear this or not, but I get there. I leave at like 6 in the morning. I get there. It's like 11 in the morning. I go to the courthouse, and they say, oh, sweetie, I'm sorry, but our water pipe just burst, and we're closing. And I said, no. I said, you can't close, you know? I'm like, and the, this wonderful woman is there, and, and they're so nice down there, you know? And uh, she goes, I- I'll help you. I'll help you, you know? So the court closes, and she and I literally are looking for these old. She goes, I don't know if we're going to have them. You know, that's a long time ago. I mean, this is, this is 2018. This is a crime that occurred in 20, or 1972, you know? So we're almost 50 years out. And, you know, with all these laws on, you know, records retention, you know, uh, it wasn't a murder, you know, and I ran into many of these cases that I was looking at and the records are just gone because they don't retain them. And she's like, well, we'll look. And she goes, but I don't know. And so we go up into this attic. It's July. It's hot as hell. Um, we're in this unair conditioned attic of an old courthouse in, in you know, county south of Huntington, West Virginia. And we are up in there, and I'm looking at these boxes, and it's 1976, you know, 1975, 1974, and we're getting closer to 72, and we're getting to the end of the records. And I'm not exaggerating. The last box was her case. So I picked this up, and that's where I, I got the court records. And I still just had her name that was unmarried, right? So I'm going through everything. I'm going through witness lists at the time. They weren't. It wasn't a complete court record, but it was a lot of the court documents. It was witness lists. It was motions. It was rulings. So it wasn't a lot of the investigative stuff, right? So I'm looking through all this stuff, and I find witness lists, and I find a guy who had the same last name, a male. And it turns out that was her father, but I didn't really know that at the time. So I take all this stuff. We make copies. And I don't remember who that woman's name was. But if I ever see her, I'm going to give her the biggest hug because she broke this case open for me. And I get this documents, this stuff, and I go back to the library in that town and at Huntington. I go to the Huntington Public Library. I get on their computers. I get on my Ancestry account um, because I had had to do the genealogy for Seferis. So I had an Ancestry account. And I'm going through... Uh, their directories at the time, 1972 phone books, all this kind of stuff. And it took me all day to find this. And I find where um, this man who I had the name of, who was the last name of the victim, I find an obituary. And I read down the obituary and survived by daughter, and it has her name. And I'm like, and it had her new last name, you know? And I'm like, founder, maybe, you know? So I had the new last name to go over. And I can't tell you what it was, but it was something like Miller, you know, uh, you know, it was <laughs> like common. incredibly common. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, my God, it helps a little bit. But so I'm going through all this and I find what I think is her brother and he's living clear over on the east side of town. And um, so I, I get the phone directory out. I get an address. I'm like, this, this, this seems like a, a, a good address. It's recent. I call. I get no answer. I'm like, I got to drive out there. And I still haven't found her, right? I haven't found her name in a phone book. I just found what I think is her brother because he's listed on the obituary too. And I'm like, well, maybe I can find her through her brother. So I drive clear out to the other side of town 
and I'm on my way, and it's getting late. It's like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I've been working on this all day, and i got to stop and, I, you know, use the restroom, and there's a, like a little sheets, like a little gas station. So I go in, I get a, get a bottle of water, use the restroom. I come out, and there's a sheriff's car there, and I'm like, man. So I walk up to the deputy, and I say, look, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing, and I'm trying to find this person. And I'm getting ready to head out to this house, and I'm wondering if you can tell me, do you have records of it? Is it a good address? You know. So he does his research, and he's like, yeah, it looks like that's a good address. I'm like, cool, maybe I'll find her brother. And I'm like, one more thing. Um, can you run this woman's name for me? You know, Maybe she's had a speeding ticket. So somewhere in their records, they had her at an address and a phone number um, because of maybe she made a report over something. So I'm like, great, gives me the phone number. So I call the phone number right there in the parking lot of the sheets and I'm like and a man answers and I say this is who I am this is what I'm doing so I'm investigating and I'm looking for and I say her name does she live there and he's like just a minute so a woman picks up the phone and this is who I am this is what I'm doing this is why I'm calling you are you the woman I'm looking for and she says yes and I was so excited. I was like so happy, right? And I'm like, I have looked for you for so long. I mean months, Paula. I have looked trying to find this woman. And I don't know why I put that much effort into this case. I just knew, this is where it sounds really crazy for me to say, I just knew that was an important case. I just knew she was important. Um, I just knew it. I, I felt it. And I worked so hard to find her. And, and you I, know, you don't know what you don't know until yeah. you talk to her. You, she could have had the key to the whole thing. Right. You know, I mean, you don't know. So she agrees to meet with me, and, um, you know, I drive to her house, clear on the other side of town now, you know, and it's dark by now. It's getting dark. It's like 9 o'clock at night, and I pull up, and God bless her husband. He's the sweetest man, and um, I'm so happy, you know. I'm like, I'm like elated. I'm like, I can't believe, you know. So I get in the driveway, and I hop out of my car, and I'm walking up to the front door, and this man walks out, big man, you know. And I'm like, hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you, you know. Um, introduce myself. And he goes, I need to see some ID. You know, so oh, <laughs> I'm yes. like, hey, no problem. You know, he's real protective, you know. Yeah. So I show him my ID, and then I meet her, and we just have this incredible meet. And just, that's, you know, I learn about the calendar and, and all this. And she takes me through this entire case that she's never talked about in 50 years. And she couldn't be more sweet, you know. And... I'm still in touch with all these victims, and they're just the, the incredible ladies, the incredible ladies, and very courageous. So this is an example of all the work you do for this one case, right? in case there's something here right. that you can use, and now you're learning. We can't use any of them. It didn't matter. It didn't matter, yeah. And, and I did that on all these cases, right? She, she's, hers was the most extreme because it was Huntington, West Virginia. I had to travel for that one. The rest of them were fairly local, but... I mean, it was a tremendous amount of hours spent. I, I think it hours. helps put me in your mindset when you're hearing the ruling from the judge. Oh, it's devastating. Just add this times 10 or whatever you've put into these other cases, and then in the end, yeah. you know, you can't use... But that's okay because the full story can come out. <laughs> you know? What was great, though, was, was uh, and it was devastating. The ruling came out, and it was, it was devastating. And, and we knew that, you know, when you think about the Karen Benz case... You know, in particular, you know, the Davis case, there was some stuff there. There were some carpet fibers. There were some, you know, uh, the piece of the knife handle. There were knives, you know. It still wasn't a lot, you know, but it, and some DNA, right? And Karen, you got some DNA, YSTR profile to be exact, not, not autosomal, but 
that's really kind of all you had. You had no association whatsoever between these two. You just say he denies ever knowing her. The investigation didn't reveal any connection. You just have this DNA under her fingernails. Is that alone going to be enough? Now, it was enough to get probable cause from a grand jury, but a trial is a whole different ballgame, right? And so what do we do? And we're not going to dismiss. We're not going to quit, you know? So we got to go with what we got, which you're worried about. What is the prosecutor telling you at this point? They're not backing off at all, but are they trying to moderate your expectations? it, it It was a hit to them, too. You know, we knew that, I mean, they... We had talked beforehand, we're like, look, just a couple of these other acts, and we can show this pattern, you know, even if we just did a couple. But when she came back and said none, she did us a favor, actually. And it was it made the choice of whether or not to appeal her ruling an easy one, because if she would have allowed a couple that we felt were kind of the two weaker ones, we'd have been like, oh, man, you know, we really kind of wanted this other one. What do we do? But when she just says none, it's like, well, then we appeal. And so they did a pretrial appeal, which is not a common thing and on a, on a judge's ruling. And it takes a while, and hence that time period between 2019 and 2023. And so we sent this case uh, to the appellate court uh, at, in Ohio there, and we wanted a ruling on whether these acts should be admissible. And that took a while, right? And so as we notify the judge and the defense that we're doing this appeal— they say, hey, this is your appeal. It's going to take a long time. My client needs to get bonded out. And so the judge agrees, and they issue him a bond on the condition he wear a GPS on his ankle. And so he's out for just a few hours, and he goes to the Akron-Canton Airport. And this GPS alerts as that being, I guess I'm going to say, kind of a prohibitive area that sets off kind of an alarm. And they rescind his bond and send the U.S. Marshals, and they get him. And so he was, was only he out. In the airport, or just he was back at his in? sister's house by that time. Okay. He says he just went there to rent a car. Um, we don't know why he went there, uh, but they pick him up, and he's only free for a few hours, and he's back in county. <laughs> so, and that's where he stayed. Why were they taking this serious? Yeah. So, okay. so we send the appeal down, and you know, we say, look, we feel this is important to establish identity. There's no other way. Uh, in this case, uh, particularly in the Benz case, where we can prove his identity. You know, he's denying ever knowing these women, you know. So identity, his identity being that DNA is, is, is important. And we think that that's one of the reasons that you can allow this, is by law. And we also think motive is one. Um, and so we outline these cases and, and we send it all down there. And there's another hearing, you know, at the appellate level. And after, oh my God, I think it was over a year, they return and say, hey, um, they could have ruled a number of different ways. They could have said, we agree with the judge and they're not allowed. They could have said, we think the judge erred in her ruling and needs to reconsider. And so she has to think about it again and rerule. Or they could have said, we think the judge erred and we think that these cases, A, B, C, and D, must be allowed. They chose the middle one and said, we think the judge erred and she must reconsider but they're not telling her that they have to be admitted. And so it was kind of like a victory, but a partial victory. And so, geez, so now we have to go through this again. And the judge has to rerule again, you know? And so it was more waiting, you know? And God love her, you know? She reruled. 
And I think she allowed all but two. Now, is there anything else between this ruling and the trial that changes in terms of the evidence that's going to be allowed or not? Anything so, so normally in cases like this, you know, there might be certain uh, hearings that are established. And I, and I think that a lot of those hearings took place between the defense and the prosecution uh, on the admissibility of stuff. And even these cases, you know, who are we going to be allowed to call? What can they say? Um, what can't they say? You know, what's hearsay? What isn't? You know, so there were st- even though these cases were allowed, they were allowed under some guidelines, you know, like you can only... You can't just go out there and talk freely, you know. But um, so there were some rules, uh, which kind of hurts a little bit um, in some cases, you know, because you want the jury to hear just as much as possible because you based your decision on this. Um, but we were worried that the knife from Huntington may not be allowed to come in because uh, the officer who collected it is dead. But what we did do, uh, I think, to help out with that was the knife was allowed to be shown to the victim, and she was allowed to say whether or not that was similar or not to the knife that was used that night. And so that's kind of how that piece of evidence was allowed to come in. So, you know, all the uh, items from East Avenue, the clothing, all this stuff, uh, none of that was allowed to come in, you know, because none of the officers who collected it are alive. So... That's the law. I mean, that's the procedure. If the detective who or the officer who collected the evidence dies, in general, the evidence no longer exists. I mean, isn't there, aren't there forms? Aren't there written statements about what was collected and when and by whom that that can be admitted? Great question. But, you know, here's rules of evidence that a lot of people don't know about, you know. And the answer to the question is, generally, you have to have a witness on the stand to introduce a piece of evidence. Now, I'm no, I'm no attorney, and the prosecutors have all the explanation on that. But um, if even all of these 70 pages of typed, single-spaced, small-lines investigations in the Karen Bentz case, written by these officers, none of that was admissible. I could not talk about any of what they did. I couldn't talk about what they uh, found. The I couldn't talk about the suspects that they cleared, how they were cleared. None of it. Unless, unless that door was opened up by the defense somehow, which they did a little bit. So I couldn't talk about all the records that I uncovered. I couldn't talk about the divorce records. I couldn't talk about the notes that I discovered from uh, Loretta Jean Davis' case and the interviews with his ex-wife, Sapphira's ex-wife, who talked about how he would choke her, how he would use a knife when they had intercourse, um, the fact that he had the car that night. You know, all this stuff that you know doesn't come in because the officers that, one, she's not alive to testify to it herself today, and two, the people that she told aren't alive. By she, you mean... Seferis' ex-wife. Ex-wife. Yeah. She was already dead. She was already dead. Okay. She said that when they would have intercourse, he would always have a knife with them. There was a note in there about some kind of a rubber knife or something, you know, he would use, and he would be very violent during intercourse and things like that, yeah. So, a lot of notes. There were, uh, like, in 1973, when he was arrested for picking up the woman uh, at the bus stop, right after... He was arrested for that. He checked himself into Fallsview, the mental institution. None of that information could come out. You know, the fact that he 
was saying he had some kind of a problem or something, you know. Why couldn't that come out? No one's there to testify to it unless he took the stand. If he took the stand, that might be able to come out. People watch shows and they get this impression of attorneys presenting these cases and evidence. And I think a lot of that comes from opening arguments and closing arguments because they're free to say a lot of different things. Rules of evidence for those are a lot different, right? And so they can tell their story and do all that kind of stuff. But during trial, when they have a witness on the stand, um, they have to ask their questions, not leading fashion, all that kind of stuff, and await the answer. But they have a lot of control. And as a witness on the stand, you have very little, you know. And so when the defense began to cross-examine, they were reflecting back a little bit on their opening argument about the fact, in particular, that Karen Bentz had a baby when she was young. She dated bikers. She was kind of, they made her out in opening arguments to be kind of this biker lady, right? Like it passed around by the, the bikers. And that she was, you know, in trouble all the time and, and, and all this stuff, right? Just, just really diminished her character, made her sound like bad. And so during cross-examination, I had my three three ring binders up there. You know, I had my Bentz case, my Davis case, and my other axe binder because I didn't know what they were going to ask. And so they would say, I want you to go to Bentz uh, investigation page 52. I want you to look at the third paragraph. And does that sentence there not say, for example, Michael Morris is a prime suspect in this case? And I would say yes. However, and they'd say, just yes or no, officer. Just yes or no. Right? So that's what they did. They pieced a, a statement here, completely out of context, with no opportunity for me to come back and say, yes, but Michael Morris was cleared on page 72. Right? Mm-hmm. So they're like, here, doesn't the investigation say this? And so what they were able to do was, as most investigations, you collect a lot of information, a lot of which is not even relevant. you know. Um, but you don't know until you get it. Right? It's not pertinent. And so they would, how the whole biker thing came up was Karen dated a guy that was part of a, what was called the Los Santos Motorcycle Club. And she dated him for a few weeks and that ended. And so when they're asking people about this, they're saying, well, I think Karen dates some dude who was a biker and I think he's in a gang called The Chosen Few, right? Well, it wasn't that, but now you have the name, biker name Chosen Few. Now you have the biker name Los Santos. And then later on, someone calls in and says, hey, there's this guy at a bar in Norton. He's with the biker gang, New Breed, and he's talking about needing to get out of town because he did something. And that's all. That's it, right? But now the defense is bringing in, well, didn't they question a guy with a New Breed, right? So now what you have is you have Karen Benz who dated one dude for a few weeks who was associated with one biker gang. But during the course of the investigation, you're hearing about these other things, and it's just a statement, you know? Hey, we heard about this guy. And so they're like, well... And they brought up, you know, the new breed biker gang and the chosen few. So it makes it gives this impression to the jury that there's all these biker gangs around Karen Benz when it's completely not true. And so it's very frustrating, as you can imagine. And you're trying to say yes, but, you know, or however. And as soon as you say that, just yes or no, officer, just yes or no. But I think that that's a double-edged sword sometimes because a jury doesn't like that, you know? They want to hear. They know something's hit yeah, from yeah. Not only that, but the prosecutor can come back up and go, so why don't they so, two? Yes, what is that, and that is true. So, so, so in redirect, that can all come out. So after, you know, uh, direct exam, which was pretty much establishing my history, how I came about doing this, um, you know, 
a little bit about the conversations with Gus, the fact that he knew about um, the uh, statute of limitations applying and not applying, you know, information like that. Very brief examination. Then they cross-examined me, and they did the kind of yes or no thing quite substantially. So after that, there's a chance, as you said, for redirect. And I'm sitting there waiting, and I see the two prosecutors talking, and I see the one talking. I see Brian talking. I see John shake his head no. And um, finally, Brian gets up, and he goes, no further questions. And so what trans... I'm I'm shocked. I'm shocked because, you know, I've been on the stand for days at a time and other murders, and this is like a bunch of cases. I literally thought I'm going to be on the stand for like a week, you know? And here I was like two hours later, and I'm off, and I'm like, this can't be possible. But they can recall you. They could if they wanted to. And, and, and if Gus would have taken the stand, I certainly would have been a rebuttal witness. Um, but at that stage, the prosecution rests, right? So I go back, and they rest for the day, and they adjourn the court, you know. Court will be adjourned, and we'll do closing arguments tomorrow or something. And I'm like, what happened, you know? And Brian comes to me, and he goes, look, I know you wanted to get up there and just destroy them. I, because I literally had... All, all this, I had every, every person named in both of those murders, every person who was remotely a person of interest, I had their name, I had the page number of the investigation of how they were, uh, uh, not acquitted, but um, their alibi was justified, how they were cleared, you know? So I would have been able to go back and say, yes, this person, you know, Bob Smith, was cleared on page 72, this is why he was cleared. I had it all, I was so ready, you know? And I didn't get to use any of it. And um, it was just all that pretrial prep that, you know, I guess it's that rule of thumb that better to be um, to, to have and not need than to need and not have, right? And so I, I, I had it. I was ready. But it didn't come out. And um, he goes, I know you could have gotten up there. I know you could have rebutted all of that stuff. But we just sat here and we just thought we had enough. You know, we just thought we had made our case. And it, it's, this is one of those strategic courtroom decisions, you know? And these guys are the pros. You know, they do this for a living. Is the concern that too much might bore the jury or they might think you're trying too hard? I I think that plays into it. You know, I I think that maybe, uh, you know, in talking to them, it's one of those things It's like, you know, when you rebut something so hard, you're kind of giving more weight to it, you know? Whereas if you're just like, eh, who cares? Yeah, You're like, yeah, the defense brought all that up, but... It's not important. So we're not even going to respond to it. And I think that's the image. And that's where you're getting that, that courtroom strategy, you know, that I'm completely ignorant of, you know, because I just I want to tell them everything. I want the jury to have know everything, you know. And But they're like, we think we got enough. We just think that by going back up there and getting into all these people and all this investigation that clearly is just not important, you know, they've all been cleared, it's just, it's just going to confuse things. It's going to, we're good. Now, how long did the trial last? How many days? Oh, my heavens. Um, a couple weeks, I think. A couple weeks. Because there was, was a lot there, of testimony. Was there a low point? I mean, was there a day when you came away that you would register on the low end of confidence? Like, maybe more than any other day, I'm really worried about how this is going to go. Was there ever that kind of point? Or was it, you just consistently, you know, one emotion? Sometimes... I, I think there were days where it was kind of consistently one. I never had a day where I felt... Re- in the beginning, it was kind of rough because 
that's when you learned the defense strategy, what they were going to say. You knew they were going to attack the victim. You knew they were going to attack me. You knew they were going to say that the police planted evidence or we lost records. Things completely out of my control. You know, I mean, I had no idea why Portage County lost four knives and files and all this, you know, but that's, that's what it was. It was just, okay, that's what we got to deal with. But of course, they're going to make that seem like it was huge. And that's their job, you know. And contrary to popular belief, just as a side note, you want good counsel. You want good defense counsel because I don't want to do this again. I want competent defense attorneys because I don't want this case going to an appellate court saying, hey, they didn't do their job and this guy gets another trial. I want it one, one and done, you know. So you want good attorneys and you know they're going to exploit where they can and that's their job. I respect that. I don't hate them for it or anything. They were good guys. But you're sitting there and you're getting the, the idea of how they're going to, their strategy at the beginning of the trial. And you know there's some holes there. You know you know you got some things to deal with, and you worry. Uh, but then it kind of levels out. And the high points, though, the high points were where these women who were victimized him came and testified. And I've got to tell you, the drama in that courtroom was, you could have heard a pin drop. I mean, they were amazing. Their stories are so compelling and so vile. And the jury, at times... You could hear him crying, you know, just listening to these women testify. And I don't know who it was because my back was kind of to the jury the whole time, the way the courtroom was set up, which I hated because I couldn't gauge them. You know, I like to watch a jury when a witness is testifying and kind of see who's really paying attention and what the effect was. But they, uh, when the Huntington, West Virginia woman came and testified, um, and the defense attorney, she had brought a little bag with her. And he's like, well, you took some notes back in the day, and you even, what, you had like a calendar or something? And she goes, yes, it's right here. And she pulls it out. She pulls out the calendar that she had from 1972. And I could hear a juror go, oh, my God. You know, I could hear him just like breathe in, like, oh, my God, this woman really kept that thing, you know? And uh, so there were times when you knew that the jurors were very engaged and they were listening and, and, and there were times when jurors were crying and you're just like, look, I get it. This is the first time they're hearing it. I've lived with it for a while and it's bad to hear. Um, and that's when you feel like they're getting it. They're seeing it. They're seeing it, you know. And that's good. So you feel good on those days. Not because you feel like they're prejudiced and they hate this guy, but they're, they're seeing it, you know. They're seeing who he really is. And that's important, I think. So, so the trial concludes... And you've got to wait for the verdict. How long did they deliberate? Like four, four and a half hours. So when you hear they're coming back, what's the general rule of thumb? A fast deliberation usually means conviction? What's the rule of thumb on that? Well, too fast is bad, right? I mean, you look at the acquittal uh, in the Benita Parker case and they deliberated for an hour. And, you know, juries are one of those things that you just never know. And, and you, you leave that courtroom after closing arguments and you're relieved in a way because you're like, okay, now it's in their hands. You know, my part is done. Everyone's part is done. I hope they saw the truth and render a just verdict. And so my wife and I and and our daughters, we, we went to lunch and we're waiting and I didn't want to go too far, you know, because if a jury comes back, you want to be there to hear the verdict and that might only be 20, 30 minutes time frame. So if we came all the way home, I'd be driving 40 minutes back. I might miss it. So we hung around the area, and I was going to hang out probably till around 
dinner time, you know, supper time. And if they were going to break for the day and, and deliberate into the next day, then I would come home. So we're kind of out. We're walking around the mall. You know, we're getting something to eat. You know, I'm checking my phone. You know, I'm wondering what's going on. And finally, I decide to go back to the police department. I'm like, let's just drive back to Talmadge and we'll be able to sit down and, and, and all that. And I, we pull in the parking lot and we don't even get into the building. And my phone rings. And they're like, jury's back. And I'm like, I'll be there. And so we leave and we, we go and uh, you're wondering because, you know, the, the defense, they have to convince just one person, you know, one out of those 12, reasonable doubt. We have to convince unanimously. And that's, that's a hybrid, and it should be a hybrid in the proof, you know, but it's one that is concerning nonetheless because you don't know these jurors, you know. And you don't get another crack at this. No. You swing, you miss. He's he's free. done. He's free for the rest of his life. Yeah, unless you find another case. But on these cases, he's done. You know? That must have been going through your mind. Absolutely, when you. What well, always goes through your mind? Through that for, it always goes through my mind. Even even going back, you know, at grand jury, um, I've got to know. You know, I've I've got to believe. I'm, I was never that detective that was like, it could have been this guy. Let's see what a jury says. I've got to believe, you know, that, that I got the guy. And if I'm going to take someone and I'm going to indict them on a charge, I'm going to put them in the county jail even, even take their freedom for a day, I, want, I got to believe, you know. And so, yeah, I believe this is the guy. We got him, you know. But I know it's not open and shut. You know, it's, it's, there's some problems. It's an old case. Could it ever have been a strategy to try just one of the, one of the murderers? And leave the other one for... Yeah. So, so great question. And, and the reason I mean, we, we haven't talked about this, but the defense files motions too. And one of those motions was severing, severing these two cases. So you'd have to do Benz alone and you have to do Davis alone. Uh, the judge did come back and say, no, we're going to do them both together. Um, so she denied their motion to sever, um, but they did try. They did try to do that. So I think it was like, look, this has been going on long enough. We're going to have these two cases together. The evidence is so similar for both that it would be but just... could it have been beneficial for the prosecution to do that? Because then if you lost one, you still had another case to try. Yeah. You would get another crack at the... So I think that's just the decision yeah. that, you know, those guys who do that, they they know. they mm-hmm. That's their area of expertise. Having them together was more powerful to... I think so. Because if you yeah. miss on one, you can get the other... So in the end, mm-hmm. you had the prior acts that were admitted. You had DNA under Karen's fingernails. You had touch DNA from Loretta's right. belt. Um, you had the piece of the knife mm-hmm. found on Loretta. You had the fibers on her shoes. That's Is that the basic accounting of the, the, of the evidence? The, okay. the biggest part was that that modus operandi. It was showing that pattern of conduct, how he approached these women, where he approached. And it was even the geographic area, you know. What we didn't talk about, you know, we, we mentioned some street names, North Main, Arlington, East Market. But when you look at those four women, so there were there were seven arrests in seven years, is what Gus always used to say. They weren't all arrests, but there were seven events from 69 to 76. So the first one and the last one, he kind of knew. The first one was kind of someone he worked with, and the last one he had met at a bar, right? So that left uh, again, five, right? So it left five more. Well, one was in Huntington, West Virginia. So now we're down to four. So of those four 1970 attacks, they all took place on North Main from St. Thomas down to Market 
two on East Market between Main and Arlington, and one on Arlington. So these three streets encompassed these four women where he picked them up. And Karen Bentz was last seen very close to the corner of Market and Arlington. She lived on Arlington, right there in the, that, where, Mar- where Market came in. So she's there walking at 11.30 at night, this prime hunting time for him, in the same area where he was picking up all these same other women. And so when I talked to him after he was arrested, you know, one of the things, and this is just another one of those little pieces of information, was I drew him that map on the wall. You know, I drew him, this is, this is Main Street, this is East Market, and this is Arlington, and this is where you picked up these women. And he was like, wow. He goes, that speaks. That speaks, you know. He actually said that. I'm like, I know it does, Gus. You know, it's, it's powerful. You know, I said so. No, we didn't bring that up. I don't know why. I don't know if it would have been one of those things on rebuttal or, or what, but it wasn't brought up, you know. And so I said, well, then why were you there? What were you doing there at that hour? I said, did you go to bars there? Did you, you know, no, no, no. I was looking for women. I go, okay, you were looking for women. Uh, why? And he paused and he goes, well, for sex. And so here we get this sexual motivation of these sexual assaults, right? And this area that he hunted. And he's, he's, he's telling us, he's telling us, I drove those streets in that particular area looking for women to have sex with. And we know from these women that he attacked that he wanted sex, that he picked them up in those areas. And if they didn't consent, he became violent. And his violence would be strangulation. And his violence would be use of a knife. And those are the things that were used in these murders. And so all those other acts were so important to establish that information. It wasn't about saying Gus Ferris is a bad guy. It was about saying this is how he operated. And this is where he operated. And this is why he operated that way. And so that was just such key information. And that's why when the judge originally ruled that none of that could come in, it was devastating. It was devastating because it painted such a context to understand the murders. Otherwise, it's just two women who were stabbed, right? Could you, knowing what you know now, having been through it all, could you guys have won that case without the prior acts? I think my whole belief system was that going in without the other acts, we might get Davis. I think there is enough physical evidence there with the car. Even though his wife didn't testify to the fact that he had the car that night, her daughter, who lived with her, we flew in from Colorado, and she was able to testify that, yes, my mother and and Gus would fight over him taking her car. And so we put him in the car. We couldn't put him in the car that night, but we got that little piece of information that said he had access to that car. So that access, the carpet fibers, the color. And when you put a Chrysler Cordoba and a 74 Pontiac Grand Prix next to one another from the back and from the side, not the front because the hoods are completely different. But when you put them back, it's almost like that, that scene from My Cousin Vinny where it's like, you know, same car, same, same shape, same side. I mean, the wheelbase is like an inch apart. The weight is like 20 pounds apart. The, the, it, I, I'll show you pictures. They just look almost identical. Slight differences, but almost identical. So easy to make that mistake. Both were silver. The carpet fibers matched. So I'm thinking, I think there's a good chance. Um, Bentz, I don't think we're going to convince a jury. I don't think we're going to convince a jury just based upon the mere fact that she was walking down a road um, by herself and her his DNA what could be his DNA 
is under her fingernails. You know, we would have then had to bring in things like probably how we excluded the rest of his family through the genealogy research that we did uh, and all that. But it would have been it would have been hard. And had those cases been then been separated, like say the judge ruled no other acts and separation of trials, you're going into bets with just that. And it, I wasn't convinced. You know, I mean, I was convinced he did it because I've seen it all and you can't just ignore it. But from a standpoint of will we be able to prove it, I, did, I wasn't clear. And even with all the other acts of evidence, I was worried that a jury would say yes to one and no on another. Um, did they have the option, even mm-hmm, though they were sure. combined? Could they mm-hmm. have said we find guilty? Yeah, he, here's a, another thing yeah. that's incredibly interesting on the case is, and I didn't know this uh, until these cases came about, because how often do you do cold cases, right? Unless you're a cold case investigator. But when we indicted them, we have to indict them under the law at that time. So quite literally, when we, the jury has to decide on all the elements of a crime, like say murder, you know, knowingly did commit um, the death of another, you know, by violent means or whatever it is, those elements you have to knowingly and the death of another. Well, we have to go back to the law as it was in place in April of 1970 and September of 1975. And so the charges were actually different on both of the women because the charges had changed in that five-year period. And we had to go back to old law books and we had to find all that old stuff. And this was the prosecutors. I say we, but they did it. And, um, but when we, re- when we charged him, the indictment had to read the elements of the law as it was written at that time. And part of that had things to do with abduction and, and it, it just read a lot differently. So the jury in deliberation has to decide, did we meet all the elements beyond a reasonable doubt as the law read under Karen Bentz and then under Laura Jean Davis? And so I, I talked to a juror uh, a few days ago, um, and he was happy to have coffee with me, and he wanted to know some more facts of the case, and I wanted to know what happened in the jury room. And um, so we're talking about it, and he goes, yeah, there was a little bit of a hiccup on on the bents. You know, one juror was not sure that we met the elements. She thought he killed her, but she wasn't sure about whether the language of the law, if we proved it. Um, and so they went around the room, and he's like, it was very amicable. You know, no one argued, no one fought, but everyone said why they believed. And eventually, um, she, she said, okay, I see. I see what you guys are talking about. I, I'm, I'm good now. And they convicted on Bents. Uh, they said Davis was kind of a, a no-brainer. They, they felt they had, there was plenty of evidence there, um, and, and they, they were good on that one. And that was the stronger of the two cases, you know, because you had some physical evidence along with the DNA. Even though the DNA wasn't quite as good as it was in Bents, you had more stuff. And the DNA in Bents was a little better, but that's kind of all you had. And it worked out. You know, worked out. So you're you're back in the courtroom. They're mm-hmm. reading the verdict. He gets life without parole. So we get the verdict, but she doesn't sentence right away. Okay. There's like a week before sentencing or okay. so, like two weeks maybe. So tell me how you feel about the when the verdict uh, is read. What do yeah. you do? Well, so the form foreman hand. You know, the judge gets the foreman's thing and mm-hmm. about to read it. What, what's going through? Your mind? God, I hope that they, I hope they saw the truth and rendered a just verdict. I mean, literally, that was my mantra for for years. I just wanted to see the truth and render a just verdict. That's all I asked for, you know. And so I'm thinking that in my head, you know. I'm, I'm hoping that we get it, and I'm, I'm I'm pretty confident, you know. I mean, I felt good about Davis, 
but I still had that, are we going to get both, you know? But at the end of the day, and this is kind of hard to say, if we had just gotten one, I knew that would put him away for the rest of his life. He's an old man. But you didn't want the family of Karen Benz to feel like they didn't get justice, you know? Because that's really what it was about. When the jury came in, could you kind of look at the jury and kind of like, did you kind of look at them and see what their language was? Yeah, I I did a little bit, but I, I didn't get anything, you know? I'm like, okay. But as soon as we sat down, um, I think before the jury came in, I think the judge called the defense and the prosecutors up and said, hey, the, the jury has a question about the elements of one of these charges. And, I, I, and then, as soon as I heard that, I'm like, we got him. Because if they were going to acquit, they wouldn't care what the language was. We didn't prove he did it. But if we did, they just want to be certain. So they had a question about how the law was written and, and, and what these words meant or something. I don't remember exactly, but there was question. And I'm like, that's a good sign. So the four and a half hours of deliberation is kind of a sweet spot, you know. Um, I think it was good. When I heard that they came back in one day after a few hours, it wasn't too quick. But it was long enough. I, I felt a little. My confidence started to grow. I'm like, this could be good. But I didn't. You don't want to. You don't want to be that hopeful. You know, You'd be let down. And then the question was good. And so they come in, and the jury gets. The, uh, you know, the foreman gets the verdict. And you know, do you all agree? And yes, we all agree. And so uh, she reads the verdict. You know, and I'm like, yes. And and it was everything. It was all the charges, guilty on all charges. I'm like, this is fan- this is more than I hope for. You know. And it's what I wanted and what I hoped for, but it was it was just good, you know. And so then the, the defense did something that I'd never seen before in a trial. And not that I'm, you know, that seasoned of a guy. Most of my cases get pled out. You know, you don't have to go to trial and testify all the time. But he uh, asked for the jury to stand up individually and oh. each say whether they agreed with the verdict. And, and I had just never seen that before, you know. And so you're kind of putting every juror on the spot, you know, on the record to stand up and say, did you agree with this? And they're like, yes, 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 yes. And that's when I really had an opportunity to kind of look at the jury and see who they were and, and, and go from there. The best shot I got of looking at the jury really occurred when I testified because you're kind of facing them then. And the whole trial, my back was kind of to them. And so when I went up on the stand, I was the last to testify for the prosecution. And I think every juror probably wants to hear from the guy that investigated the case, right? You know? And so I get up there and I sit down, I got my binders and you're watching the jury and I see them all that, you know, they all kind of fix their seats. They set up a little straighter, they get their notebooks out, you know, and I'm like, they're engaged, they're ready. They want to hear. And so that's why when I was only on the stand for such a short time, I was like, wow, I hope they're not like let down, you know, because they probably like, Hey, we're going to get to hear everything. And, uh, and they didn't, but they heard enough throughout the, the couple weeks. That's for sure. But it was good. And, uh, but so you, the, um, sentencing happened about a week later right. and that was, uh, was it one life without parole, two lives without so parole? So it was, uh, I think, life with the chance of parole on, on Benz after so many years, um, and then life without parole on, I think, Davis, or I might have gotten that backward. Okay. But then the judge went a step further and asked them to be served uh, consecutively. So he has to serve one, and when he's done serving one, then he has to serve the other. So he's never getting out, which is good. He'll have his appeals, which are going through now, should last 12 to 18 months. And um, once those are over and pending that, the good thing about the appeals is, you know, what are you really going to appeal? You're going to appeal. What the, are they appealing? I would say that they're 
going to try to probably appeal the admissibility of the other acts. But the crazy thing about that is we already did a pretrial appeal yeah. and the appellate court already ruled. Yeah. And so that's good for us, I think. Um, but, you know, I'm sure the defense has their things. That's all legal jumbo, you know, all these rules and stuff. But I've been through it before and, you know, we'll see how it goes and he'll have his appeals and then off he goes. Um, now, you retired in 2022? Yes, August of so, 2022. So just a few months before the trial, but you yeah. had spent seven, eight years getting ready for it. Mm-hmm. And this was like a retirement gift. Yeah, it was It was a great way to end, um, you know, that part of my career. And it was so nice, like... Uh, Next week, I, I, I go down to Florida with some high school friends. We're going down to St. Pete's. And um, just happens that Karen Bentz's sister is in a nursing home in St. Pete's. And so I'm going to go visit her. Oh. And I'm going to actually get to you know see her and give her a hug, which is really cool. Um, she was incredibly complimentary during the victim impact statement um, of me. And you know, she's, a, she's a sweetheart. So I get to see a surviving family member, you know, and, and kind of... And I think I read yesterday you got an award from, uh, that was from the, yeah. the police department and the fraternity? Right, right. I guess the police department and the union put a little something together okay. uh, for me. And, and my partner, Dave Chicola, like when I would go interview Gus, it wasn't just me. You know, Dave Chicola was there with me. He's been my partner through every case I've worked, I think, and uh, all the murders and stuff like that, which there haven't been that many in town, which thankfully, but the ones that we had, we were there, we were together on. And so he's like my partner in crime, but... Um, I was one. Of, I was one who had to testify. Dave oh yeah, Chicola. yeah. Dave is Chicola. Is he still there? He is. Yeah, right. great guy, great investigator, and uh, we were in the DB together for a long time, and uh, so it was real nice. But I mean, you can't you can't acknowledge everyone uh, because there are so many, uh, so many, and all these. It, it kind of breaks your heart a little bit, you know. I try to put myself back in the in the mindset of those detectives who worked the Karen Benz case. They put in hundreds, if not thousands of hours over the years. And you know, her daughter, Lori, she would come back to the department in the 80s and in the 90s, and she'd be like, when are you going to catch my mom's killer? When are you going to get my mom's killer? You know, why haven't you guys found him yet? And this weighed on those detectives, you know? And so they ended up their their careers not knowing, not solving it. They ended up dying, um, not knowing, you know? And as a detective myself, I cannot imagine the burden that that would be on me, you know, to know that I did everything I could, but I still couldn't do it, you know, and, and this family, and those families were destroyed. They were destroyed by this. The, the Davis family was destroyed by this. The Benz family was destroyed by this. And those families, the parents died without ever knowing who killed their daughter. One brother of... Uh, um, Loretta has lived a life kind of um, as a recluse, you know. When I needed to get a hold of him, I couldn't even call him directly. I had to call the sheriff in the county he lives in in West Virginia, and he would go hunt him down because there's no phone. He lives like in the woods by himself. He said he had to move there, and he had to do that because he never knew if he was seeing and associating with someone that killed his sister. It just drove him crazy. And so then you have Sandy Bentz, Karen's sister, you know, who ends it up kind of taking responsibility for raising Karen's daughter, Lori, along with her parents who were completely disengaged by this time. The mom turned to drinking. The dad went just, I don't want to say nuts, but it just like drove him mad. You know, he was like, who killed my daughter? He would nail the windows of their house shut, worried that someone was going to get in and kill his other daughter. 
You know, I mean, the effect on these families was devastating, just devastating, you know. And you can go on YouTube, and I think you can, you know, probably type in Karen Benz or Gustav Ferris or whatever, and you can hear the victim impact statement of Karen's sister. And it will bring you to tears. I mean, it's powerful how these families were were just crushed by this. And um, so to be able to go to Florida and see her is going to be really nice. Um, but, but I can't imagine what those detectives went through and what those families went through. And um, I hope you, you know, hope you never have to, right? Thank you all for joining us for this special three-part series, To Catch a Killer. And we get to end it on a very happy note. Soon after recording this interview, retired Captain Doug Bohan was appointed the new Chief of Police in Talmadge. So, next week, he is coming out of retirement. Paul and I want to offer our congratulations to Chief Bohan. After spending so much time with him, we're pretty confident Talmadge is in very good hands. Ohio Mysteries is a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts and KillerPodcast.com. You can also find us at OhioMysteries.com. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.